listener production. This is Come Out Wherever You Are, a podcast about coming out told by the people who have done it. I'm your host, Sean Zepps, and because this is a podcast about coming out, it's only fair that I go first. My name is John Zepps. I first came out of the closet in 2000 when I was 12 years old, or maybe I was 15. How old was I? I was 12. I was in a closet, which is so ironic and iconic. And I most recently came out two days ago in an Uber. It's always a freaking Uber. Today, we are welcoming a brand new member to the Come Out Wherever You Are family. Rob, Rob, can you introduce yourself? Tell us when you first came out and when you last came out. Okay. My name is Rob Mills. Um, people might know me from musical theatre and uh, TV shows, from hosting, hosting stuff and singing, acting. I first came out as a straight man <laughs> um, to my parents when I was when I was very young. I brought home a girl from from school, so this is my girlfriend. Um, but then, uh, over the years, have come out as uh, cur- curious, um, queer. Um, and uh, I'm now engaged to my lovely partner, Georgie Tunney, who is well aware of my sexual history and my sexual fluidity. So, yeah, I, I suppose most recently come, come out throughout through my book, um, putting on a show, where a lot of people are like, you had sex with men? I'm like, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. It makes me who, who I am. Rob Millsy Mills almost needs no introduction. Australia first got to know him in the very first season of Australian Idol way back in 2003. And since then, he has become a mainstay on Australian screen and stage. Starring in Grease, Legally Blonde, Ghost the Musical, Hairspray, and that's just to name a few. He's also written a book called Putting on a Show, Manhood, Mates, and Mental Health. And we're going to talk about all that and more on today's episode. Here is Rob. It's such an exciting conversation specifically for me to have. I grew up in the musical theater world. I obviously ended up being gay, but I surrounded myself with beautiful men of various sexualities. And so I can understand specifically growing up in the 80s and 90s, what it meant to be a man who performed through the lens of masculinity. And so to sit and have a mm-hmm. chat with someone like you, who was thrust into the public sphere on a singing competition show, a man who sings, I'm really interested while you're growing up and you're falling in love with the arts, did you hear on a regular basis, were people challenging your masculinity through performance? Oh, yeah. Yeah, there was a lot of that. I remember even when I was a really little kid, I got asked to be um, in the National Boys Choir. The mm-hmm. National Boys Choir often goes to all the schools and they try out all the kids to see if they can sing. And clearly I was a good, a good, a good singer when I was little because they said, well, we'll take him. Um, and then I took the brochure home to my parents and my dad said, both my mum and dad sat me down and said, do you want to do this? It's on Sundays. And I was like, oh, I can't, I can't do Sundays. I'm, I play footy on Sundays. Mm. So I turned down singing in the National Boys Choir, which which I like, part of me goes, oh, you could have learned all those harmonies. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> could have traveled the world. Um, but the other part of me goes, I learned so much about what it is to be part of a team mm. uh, from playing in, about winning, about losing. You learn so much through sport that I probably wouldn't have learned from just being in the choir. Yeah. Um, yeah. So it's, as a, as a man who loves, uh, who's grown to love musical theater, I think I always loved it. I always loved Disney movies and 
um, music musicals that my mum and my grandma would um, would put on when we were kids. Mm. Um, but then to get into musical theatre um, as a as a, as an older, like I was twenty six or something. Yeah, that was that was quite challenging. But luckily, I, I, I was surrounded by awesome, incredible humans. But yeah, growing up, there was a lot of taunting. What are you gay, mate? Are you gay because you sing? And then I was like, no, I just I just really like it. Mm. And luckily, I had supportive uh, brothers, supportive parents. Um, I was really, really lucky. Um, they encouraged me to sing as much as I possibly could. So, and I got into bands. Um, I remember going, I like liking pop music and liking Backstreet Boys and NSYNC and lots of stuff. But the thing that I loved the most was actually good, soulful uh, rock and roll music as well. Mm. Maybe because I played sport and also sang. It's kind of weird. I changed schools at the end of year. Um, year ten to, to to pursue acting and and uh, drama and music. So I was the kid who was in the music course, but also the kid that was playing in the footy team. Mm. So it's, it's kind of like this weird hybrid. Maybe I was the guy from like High School Musical. I was Absolutely. The you were the yeah. Zac Efron. You were the Troy yeah. of the yeah. world. It's funny. The yeah. world has come so far in such a short period of time. But when you think back to pre-reality television shows or competition shows, there wasn't a lot of examples for Aussies or Americans where I'm from to see boys competing or singing or dancing, getting to see the arts on screen really changed a lot of young boys' perspective about the idea of masculinity or femininity. When we look back through human history, it makes total sense why men play sports, right? The foundation of sports. Women weren't even allowed to be involved at all, right? They weren't in the first Olympics. It was very much like uh, men, strong, you know, fighters, protectors, athletes. And that was the definition of masculinity. And somewhere along the way, we decided that people who performed, even though the root of performance, right, our way of communicating before we had words, there was no sexuality attached to that. It just was. Everyone sang, everyone danced. It was how we expressed ourselves. And then all of a sudden, we got to a place where it was like, oh, you sing, that must mean you like to suck dick. <laughs> it's so strange, isn't it? Like, mm. it is so weird. Like, you think back to even like our fathers and grand, especially grandfathers, they would go to dances. Absolutely. Like, men and women, or, you know, all through high school and when you were adults, you'd go to a dance. Not just the high school dance, but that was the social thing to do. Exactly. Like, dancing was, and they'd do it sober. Yes. Like, you know, like, it's, why, where has that gone? When I remember when So You Think You Can Dance started on television, I was like, this is the coolest stuff ever. When I, and when I started teaching um, at workshops for like performing and stuff and singing, and um, I, I would say to all the, the boys that are there, like, how brave, like, not how brave, but how awesome is this? Like, mm. good on you, man. Like, just tr- trust me. There's so many, like, you're going to, whether you, you're into guys or you're into girls or whatever you're into, like, they're going to love you so much more because you're the most authentic, best version of yourself by doing this. Yeah. Either it's by, by doing the dance or by singing or by performing. Like, it's, it's an enigmatic kind of thing, you know, to stand mm. up and perform and be courageous. I think it's great. Yeah, it's really wonderful. I've thought a lot about it because I was a musical theater kid. I went to university for musical theater. I graduated and went to New York to perform. And I always was surrounded by beautiful straight men, right? It's such a huge part of my my childhood. And I always thought, for whatever reason, straight men got the shit end of the stick because the edu- the entertainment world became a safe haven for queer people. When you're queer and you're performing your uh, whole life on a day-to-day basis off the stage, right? Just putting on a, a skin. Theater is a place where you can play and explore and not get judged. 
Well, then all the others, you know, actually straight men who wanted to do the same thing got lumped together in this category of, oh, well, you must be. And then for those first generations of television shows, you have all of Australia, you know, watching your season, having never seen things like this before on Australian mm. Idol, or So You Think Can Dance, and they have nothing to go off of. They don't have all these references out there in the world of what it means to be a performer. Did you mm. feel way back then that people were judging your sexuality just because of you, the way you performed on TV? Was that a part of the public conversation? You know what, for me, I was incredibly naive. I talk about this in the book. I don't think I had, I had a lot of self-confidence, not a lot of self-worth and not really a lot of self-awareness back then. So mm. I, I don't actually know. I know looking back now that I was probably perceived as the, the boy next door kind of thing, this lovable larrikin kind of type. That's With reality TV, I'm sure we all know you're pigeonholed into a certain type or a type of person. Mm. Um, it wasn't until years later I realized, oh, I'm not I'm not just that. I'm, I'm more than that. I'm lots of different things, um, including my values and personality and all sorts of things. So I don't think I really thought about my own sexuality. However, I know that when I was in the house, I was, I slept with a lot of people because I'd spent all of my teens, late teens. while most, most people are partying. I worked Thursday to Sunday night singing in bands. So I was always singing on the weekends while everyone was partying. I was your entertainment at those Mm. venues. So I'd come home and just be exhausted and I'd never really get to uh, explore it or chat about it or talk to anyone because I was constantly working. And when I wasn't working on the weekends, I was working a day job during the week as well. So I, I don't think I spent any time self-reflecting at all. And that's that's part, part of the book as well is, is the importance of that. Had, it, had I been self-reflecting as, as I went along, probably like Guy, like maybe like Shannon potentially, or maybe not, um, but definitely like Courtney, uh, Courtney Act, I talk about Shane Jeddick. So I think my life would have been a lot different or maybe I would have worked things out a lot quicker but mm. I, I don't think I ever spent any time going am I the sexy heart heartthrob yeah. uh, <laughs> but I, I think it just I was just along for the ride to be honest which is probably even though potentially slowed you down in your own understanding of who you are is maybe why you succeeded so well on the show because you if you're not in your head over analyzing you can't just like yeah move forward and be your authentic self. And that's what people loved about you. It was like, here's this person who's just doing his thing and doing it really well. The people who are yeah. overanalyzing and are afraid are the <laughs> stiff ones on stage who are like, don't be too much like, you know? I, mate, totally. I think that's uh, it's something I still try and do to this very day is um, be in the moment. I mean, you, you talk to any kind of guru, yogi person or uh, life coach, they, they talk about the importance of staying in the in the in, in a groove in, you know, right, right in the pocket. And that is just being present in this very moment. Yeah. So I think I definitely try and do that at times. It's, it is to your de- detriment as an adult, because there are things that you do need to plan for. There mm. are, there are times that you need, you need to self-reflect, which is good. It's good to have that self-awareness now that knowing when it's right to be in the present moment, give your focus to everything, but then yes. to, to know when to do the other stuff. So you did the perfect segue for me, which is fantastic. But in your autobiography, putting on a show, which you have directly next to you and you've held up twice and we're going to take a screenshot and make sure everyone sees it. Uh, You talk about a wild night, which you refer to as like a bit of an orgy with Courtney Act, uh, the person behind Shane Jenick. Before we get to the story... You write this entire autobiography. There are so many aspects of your life that are compelling and interesting that a lot of Aussies don't know about. And then there's just like two little baby sentences, throw off sentences, 
And then people latch on to that and they run, they run with it. Did you expect that? And did you, when you wrote the sentences, did you, were you like, oh, this is going to excite people? No, this is, so I, Shane's, Shane's manager, Wendy, my old manager, who I talk about early on in the book, yep. she said, Do you, are you putting this in for sensationalism? I was like, it's actually quite the opposite. I'm putting it in to, I know that the media is going to pick it up and want to run with this, but I'm actually putting it in just to break down the stigma of this kind of chat mm. is to, is to probably nullify the media's uh, sensationalism over this kind of stuff. It's the stuff that young boys, young girls thinking, oh my God, I'm going to be trivialized or sensationalized when really this is just, this is just a thing. It's just mm. a thing. So my aim was just to, throughout the book was to share experiences and create a safe space so that other blokes, women as well, and um, LGBTQI plus allies will also feel like they've got a safe space to have that conversation as well or to be in a safe, safe place to introspect whilst reading it. Yeah. So it wasn't offhand. It wasn't um, sensationalized. It, would, it just was. I just yeah. tried to present, this happened. And that's it. And then, you know, it was a wonderful, incredible experience, you know, mm. um, and I've had so many incredible, wonderful experiences over, over my lifetime. And this, and this was just one of them. I really loved it. I obviously got to sit back and kind of watch it happening. I saw the news articles. I saw you referencing it. I saw Courtney talking about it. And as someone who whose career is dedicated to talking about the LGBTQI plus lived experience, it actually felt like a missing puzzle piece to the larger conversation around sexuality, gender, masculinity. We really don't like when people above the age of eight explore. We don't like people playing too much. We feel very uncomfortable with people dipping their toe into anything. You want to dress up for Halloween wearing a dress and you're a straight man? No, you can't do that. That means something. And if you want to explore your sexuality, you know, a girl kisses a girl at a birthday party, a boy has his first hookup with a guy just to see, just to explore. It has so much weight. It has so much power. And you're right, that stigma suppresses people's exploration. It's a shame and a guilt that goes with it. And I interviewed Shane the other day for, for his book um, at the, the Pride Centre in Melbourne. And we talked about this shame that you carry with you as a, um, as a, as a for him and I, for, as, as men, to try and work out what, what is it, what is this thing that I'm feeling? And why, why should society tell me how I should feel? Um, and why is it such a big thing for everyone else when I'm just trying to work it out? Mm. Um, yeah, it was... It was a really lovely conversation. And yeah, that, that whole thing of shame and guilt, I think that's the thing that's that's killing young men. I honestly think that's a lot of it is like I'm too, I feel so much shame and guilt around this. With it. Sometimes it's just a, a feeling or sometimes it's just a thought. Like, wow, you, you haven't surrounded yourself with the people that can tell you that it's okay to have these thoughts, these feelings. And uh, I think what I'm trying to do with the book is to say, we're okay. Mm. I'm okay with it. So therefore, it's okay to be not okay with this thing or, or it's just okay to, to have these thoughts and feelings and to, to share them with your mates, especially those, those around you. Because I guarantee, I talk about my friend Corbin Middlemess uh, coming out to his mate. He's an ABC uh, sports presenter. I wanted to know if it's like to be a sports journo, an openly gay sports, sports journo. Yeah. He goes, mate. And he loves a beer, like he's, you know, bloke talking, masculine kind of blokey bloke. And he's like, 
it was the weirdest thing trying to come out to my mate. I guess I just got angry with him and just got frustrated. And then his mate at the end was like, I know it's okay. Like, I don't care. Yeah. So it's just kind of like, know that if you have mates, there's a, there is a 95, 98% chance that they are probably going to be okay with it. Mm. There's a 2% chance that they won't understand it, but that's, that's for them to work it out. But yeah, I, I think the aim was just to try and keep breaking down that stigma of, um, what that is and what sexuality is. And I'm always careful to, to mention the, um, the LGBTQI plus and know that these, uh, letters stand for something and stand for, and people have worked so hard to find these labels and the, uh, these letters and they stand for so many people to identify with, but it's okay also to be in this spectrum of fluidity as well. That's what I think is also important. I actually think that's probably the future of these types of conversations and why I, your book and these bits and pieces and you talking is so important. Um, you're right. It is very important for people to feel heard and understood. And sometimes a word gives us power. Sometimes that word mm. allows us to feel that there are others like us. But in doing that, sometimes the people who do fall in between. Courtney, who's gender non-conforming, but also sexually, people who are queer or ambiguous, or more importantly, just figuring the shit out. Like, don't know. <laughs> Sometimes those people sit in the middle and go, well, I know I'm not straight and I know I'm not gay. So where do I fit? And so for people yeah. to talk more and more about the fluidity of sexuality and the fact that you might like one person one time and it might never go past that, but that that is a valid experience to talk about should become a bigger part of how we talk about sex and how we talk about relationships and how we talk about friendships and love. 100%, mate. This is a beautiful chat. Thank you. There's a, a really wonderful chat. Um, I'll, I'll, I'll just touch on two things. One was Shane's, Shane talks about in his book um, that the letters stand for the street signs and then you get to the street of that letter and you're like, oh, I could pick out the house that's on that street and then you get in that house and then you can redesign it and knock it down or move it, move it, move that house to another street later on if you want to. Yeah. But I, I like the idea that it's that kind of thing. And the other thing I want to touch on is the conversation I had with Georgia Grace, who's a sexologist um, and a sexual therapist in, in the book about the gender roles that we that we play as men and as women that we feel like these gender norms have to exist. Um, sometimes you're the, you might be the, the breadwinner male. We'll go to the stereotypical sort of situation, cis man, cis woman, heterosexual kind of couple. He's the breadwinner. She's the stay at home wife. And they feel like they have to still remain that kind of relationship in the bedroom. What if the guy wants to be pegged? What if he wants to be dominated when he gets home by his partner? You know, like, those conversations just need to be had. I mean, they don't have to be had out loud in front of everyone else. That's for them to, to work it out. But they should feel comfortable enough with super taboo. There's some super taboo sex topics and um, stuff in this country. We're very conservative when it comes to sex and um, in the bedroom is what I've learned from this from this from all this research. But, yeah, the more of those kind of conversations that partners can be having with each other um, and even new partners with each other, what do you like, what don't you like, um, I think – in from my experience in the in the in the gay world, can I say the term the gay world? Like, yeah. you, I said to my mate the other day, I go, how easy would a Tinder be for straight people? Right, if we said, I like I like to be on top. Like, there's there's there are bears, there are cubs, there are twinks, there are so many categories. And I was like, imagine there was like those kind of like terms for like, oh, I'm a sporty guy, or I'm I don't know what I don't I don't know exactly what they, those terms would be in the straight world, but like. Yeah. 
sometimes I feel like the categories would be uh, a lot easier to find the person that you're after. Anyway, I think I think just having a conversation is probably the way to go. I think what you've just said is perfect. I say it a lot as a joke, but I I know that the people who are listening know that it's true. But I say straight sex is the worst sex, and what I mean by that. <laughs> It's not, it's not. I guarantee it's not. It's, it's amazing. <laughs> it's great sex. What I mean by that is what you've just said. Deeply rooted in the queer community is the, uh, the need, the necessity based off of the secrecy of our sex and the long history of our sex and our people being marginalized, ostracized, mocked and put under a you know, magnifying glass because of HIV and AIDS, because of monkeypox, our sex is often spoken about. And because of that, what has happened is we are forced to really communicate with each other. And within our community, there is a lot of communication about our needs, our wants, and our desires that often don't happen in straight heterosexual relationships. I say often. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Absolutely. Right? I generalize a lot in the book as well. Yeah. Um, but what I mean by that is what you've said. The root of success in human relationships, strong interpersonal communication, is the willingness to say what you're thinking, what you're feeling, and receiving people when they do the same, right? And so if I go to my partner and say, I would like to explore sucking on your toes, I would like to explore, like you said, being pegged. That is such a fundamental part of what it means to be queer, right? A lot of queer relationships are non-monogamous. A lot of trust has to be thrusted into what I need and yeah, what yeah, I yeah. want. And so yeah. I often feel that we would see probably a decrease in divorce and increase in healthier relationships if we could just communicate a little bit more about our desires and our wants. Mate, 100%. I, I, I think the one thing I learned from, from the research of the book, but also just from years of having different relationships and now with a partner who's so open to learning about herself, learning about me and learning about us. Um, those long walks that we had through throughout lockdowns and, and even now, like sometimes if we, if we might go days without actually having a proper, proper chat, we'll just go for a walk, grab a coffee and you, you'd be amazed at the conversations that you can have when you're not directly staring at the other person, yeah, the judgment in their eyes or whatever. You're right, you're uh, right. We talk about a long drive in the car. Yes, Blokes, I, I'm massive for this, and I'm doing it right now. I'm sitting in the car having a chat. Blokes love driving in the car having a chat. There's something I don't know. You're doing something at the same time. Like that's why these men sheds are so successful. That's why uh, these hiking groups are so successful. You're having these great conversations whilst doing something. And maybe it's a, as I said, I'm generalizing again, but maybe it's more of a, a blokey kind of kind of thing but yeah those having those, those really in-depth conversations with your partner just connecting about what they actually want and them understanding what you want it's, it's the it's the key mate it's the key but also mm. it's that that takes time trust for you to build the trust with your partner or your friend to do that blokes take longer to build the trust but also it's ta it's you taking the time to work out what it is that you want you've got to introspect you've got to listen to you've got to actually do the work on what it is you feel and what it is that you want or else yeah. you can't express it. I also feel, I mean, one, I could not agree with you more. My husband and I, basically, every time our relationship is struggling, we get in a car. Let's just go for an hour drive so we don't have to look each other in the eyes, but we can still have the conversation. Yeah. <laughs> I hate you. <laughs> I love you, but I hate you. Right yeah. One of the things I was thinking of about reading into your story, kind of analyzing a little bit around exploration of sexuality and then knowing 
the relationships you've been in in the past and your current relationship was, uh, like I said earlier, gay sex is usually underground for a very long time, especially when you're a child, especially when you're kind of figuring your stuff out. It's secretive. And on the other end of that secretive relationship is often someone who's straight or is labeled as straight or believes they are or is trying to figure their stuff out. And I am close with a lot of those men to this day, all men who are married to women, men who have children. And 50% of them tell their wives and they don't have a problem at all. And 50% of them are too ashamed to ever address the fact that one time when they were 15, (laughs) they were just exploring. It was nothing. It was meaningless. For so many of them, it meant nothing. For some of them, it did because dumb, beautiful. But like, you know, for the first group, (laughs) for the first group, it was a blip in the radar. It was an exploratory phase of their life where they were trying to figure themselves out. But there's shame attached to that. And I think there's shame attached to it because they feel maybe if their partners found out, it might ruin the relationship or they might think that they're secretly gay. And I'm just interested, you're open Mm -hmm. and honest with your relationship. You have a strong and powerful bond, clearly. Can you talk to me a little bit about that so men who are listening, who might have explored once, can feel that honesty in a relationship and telling the truth can be okay? You can actually be in a straight relationship and have had a couple experiences and not have it ruin your life? So I, I told Georgie early on in the first six months of our relationship about my history with women, with men, relationships that I had. She's still not great knowing that I'm friends with some of my exes. But, yeah. but she, goes, she goes, look, that's me. That's my stuff. I know I need to get, because they're not bad people. They just weren't the person for me. Yeah. And we weren't the person for each other. Um, but they also made me the person that I am today. Um, and then... I wrote all the, the the Courtney stuff, and she she read it. She's like, "Oh, oh, it was it was that?" I was like, "Yeah, mm-hmm. I told I told you that." And she's like, "Oh, my parents are going to read this." I'm like, "Yeah, how do you feel? Like, I like how do you feel about that?" I asked her and made sure that she was okay with with it. I said, "I think it's important for me to tell to tell this story for young men for." Yeah, for for the for the general community, not as I said, not for sensationalism, but just I think that's important. She's like, no, right, you're right, it is important. She's like, who cares? I'm like, yeah, exactly. I'm with I'm with you. We're, we're engaged. <laughs> um, and yeah, it was it, it did take a moment, but it, as I said, it was just a conversation. Mm. And I what I love I love about her is many many things, but like is her willingness to sit with it, give it a, give it a minute, not just fly off the handle with the first immediate response that comes. Like I'm going to need some time to process this. She's a slow thinker, which I think, and I'm, I think I'm a a fast, a fast thinker, which is a really good combination um, to have within, I think within a couple, but yeah, I love the fact that she might come back to me in a week or two weeks or something and go, I've thought about that. I was like, Oh, I completely forgotten about it. But, Mm. um, it's just, as I said, yeah, it's just a conversation. And it. we talk about the those conversations, these real connections, these real conversations, the real chats as a way of leveling up. You know, at the end of a video game, at the end of every level, there's a boss that you have to defeat. And the boss is always the hardest bit of it, right? It's always the hardest bit of that level. And once you get past the boss, oh, it goes back to the normal sort of gameplay. And then you get to the next boss and the boss, the next boss is a little bit harder. 
if you want to continue in this game mm. with your partner or of life, you've got to beat the boss and it's got to be hard. So you just got to have that hard chat. And sometimes it's not even that hard, but it, it feels hard because it's confronting. But once you get past it, you get this, ah, oh, great. We're like, we've leveled up and then we we're back on again. But then you get to another bit when there's another boss. You're like, damn it. Now I have to confront something else, mm. but it's good. This is, this is the thing that helps you, I don't know, not finish the game, but you know, level, keep leveling up. We call it leveling up. I love that. I did not know this would be useful for my couples counseling next week. <laughs> Thank you. Just quote me. Just quote me. Quote I will. Me. Rob Mills told me, so it has to be true. It reminds me a little bit within our community, we often hear the troubles that bisexual and pansexual and fluid and queer people experience. Um, when explaining themselves to partners who also don't have the same identity. I think people think Mm. this is a straight problem, but it's not the case. So I identify as gay. My husband doesn't have that label. He is a beautiful, fluid person who doesn't play that game. When I met him and fell in love with him, it was another, the similar opportunity that you're, or the same exact experience your girlfriend, fiance had, where I'm hearing what he's saying. I'm processing the fact that he likes men and women. And that is an attack on my understanding of what it means to be human. So it's not like randomly a thing that only straight people experience. People within our community, another gay person, we come to terms with who we are. It's how we see the world. Even outside of this heterosexual community, we also see boxes and labels for ourselves. And when someone says, that's not my story, it challenges us. It challenges our, our way of thinking. And when love is attached when jealousy can be factored in, when the people we might need to be nervous about them leaving us for is not just one gender, but potentially two, our monkey yeah. brain goes, uh-oh, uh-oh, <laughs> problem, problem. And like you've said, the only way to get through that is open communication. And so I think it's useful for anyone listening, no matter what your sexuality is, on the other end of that conversation, whether you're looking each other in the eyes or driving in a car and not looking each other in the eyes, is someone trying to be vulnerable and saying, I care about you enough to tell you my truth so that we can get stronger or level up. I absolutely love that. Oh, great. Yeah, I think it's it's just super important to... If you love the person, they'll understand. Or if they love you, they'll understand. And if they don't, maybe they're not the person for you. And that's that's that that's the hard bit. And that's I think that's where couples break up uh, at times as well. Is that other person they're not the willingness to not be open to that. Um, but don't don't break up because you haven't had the conversation. Because you're going to get into the next relationship and you're going to get to the same point. Mm, absolutely, you've got to keep. And and you'll end up breaking breaking up with that person, like until you until you have come to terms with saying that stuff out loud. You're you're not going to be complete with yourself. So therefore, how are you going to be complete with um, another person? Absolutely. So in sharing your book and your story and going around and talking about it, what is your hope for like the future, specifically for men? Because I know. I I believe that men are struggling with gender and sexuality a lot right now. There's a ton of conversations, you know, being thrusted at them in a lot of different ways. It's a lot easier to suppress how you're feeling inside. It's a lot easier to not explore. But what was your hope when you told these stories, you know, that a guy might pick up and hear this and what what would he feel? Well, I got an Instagram message the other day from a 22-year-old diesel mechanic. (laughs) He just said, thank you so much for... Uh, for writing this book, I 
I'm going through a lot of this stuff at the moment. I'm questioning a lot of things. He didn't go into detail, but he just said, I just want to say thanks for sharing, sharing your, your story. So I feel more comfortable in sharing mine. I was like, Oh, it gets me like I'm welling up thinking about this now. Like, Oh, what a, what a, that's a gift. I feel like I'm, yeah, I'm really, I was really moved by that. So for more young, young kids, like we're seven suicides a day in this country. So I just don't want men to get to the place where they felt like they couldn't say the things they needed to say. That's all. Uh, hopefully by me sharing these stories and also finding the stats and finding these great interviews with these people, they get to, they get to learn from experts. Not from me. I'm not an, I'm not an expert. So hearing from, from people like, um, Pat McGorry and Professor Jane Perkis and Tyson Young-Caporta, Tommy Harkin and um, Georgia Grace, like heaps of incredible humans who actually work in this field um, that heaps of men are feeling this way. Like we're all, fe- we're all feeling it. It's just okay to say that you're not okay and to, yeah, find a way to connect deeper with yourself and um, therefore you connect deeper with your partner, with your parents, your brothers, sisters, um, and those close around you. That's that. That was always my my hope for it, and and for the reader to learn along with me along the journey. So as as they're reading, they're like, I'm learning stuff, and they're like, Oh, I'm learning stuff with Rob as well. Like, yeah, that's brilliant. And what I will say just to end is, a lot of the people who listen to the show are straight. They're just interested in learning and being better people, right? They they're parents, and for me, I think about my five year old son, my five year old daughter, and I think about specifically my son, what it means to be a man, how that's changing, the pressure, the stereotype that happened on the footy field, in the classroom, in choir practice. And then I just think about the fact that so many young people like me and like you have to like work through and struggle through what it means to be a human alone, or they feel that they do, because sexuality and gender are not things that we're really comfortable talking about, specifically men stories like yours, if you're listening and thinking, it's great for him. So great that he could share his story, but that's not my story. (laughs) I just try to remember, like, there's a next generation of little kids that this story can help fix and change. And if we want to live in a better world where people don't have to suffer in silence or not even suffer, just explore in silence, you know, my hope is that people can read this and hear this conversation and then turn to their kids and have different types of conversations that they're developmentally capable of having so that they understand that they can explore and they can talk about it. And if they're feeling weird, they can talk about that too because that will 100%, 1,000% make the world a better place. And you're a part of that. So thank you. Thanks, mate. I really appreciate you taking the time and for us to yeah, just keep having this conversation. And it is, it is happening. The, the, more, the more conversations that I had, the, the better. Um, social change just takes time. There is... There's a an outcry at the moment for why are things this way? Why is this? Why is Margaret Court saying these things? Why is like why why are people so angry? Like because they are, and social change takes time. So just mm. just be patient, just remain inquisitive, remain kind. I think is is also really important if you are trying to work it out. Uh, if you are trying to educate someone, just remain inquisitive. You, you can't go wrong if you come at it from an inquisitive place. I, I can't remember the last time someone changed their mind by you yelling at them. Ooh, <laughs> it just, it doesn't, it doesn't happen. Does it? 
So remain kind, remain inquisitive, and yeah, just just know that social change takes time, and it is it's it's happening. I'm just I'm happy to be a part of it. Amazing. One last time, what's your book? Where can we get it? Is there an audio version? Tell us everything. There is an audio version. The book's called Putting on a Show. It's manhood. Um, I should know this is manhood mates and mental health. Uh, it's with the, the the absolutely incredible Paul Connolly who helped me. Um, get through all these interviews and put them into some sort of cohesive order. He's, he's an amazing um, kitchen sink drama. You should check him out. He does these 100 word stories as well. He's, he's great. Um, and you can find it uh, at all good bookstores, probably at every good, at every bad bookstore as well. Um, it's, <laughs> it's, it's out there. <laughs> all good bookstores. Uh, and it's also an audio book as well. Perfect. Thank you so much. I really appreciate you. I appreciate you telling your story. I appreciate you coming on and chatting today. I know that this conversation is going to make a bunch of people think a little bit differently about the world. And that's what I'm all about. That's what we're going for, mate. We're just, uh, yeah, keep keep the chats going. Keep everyone just inquisitive. Like, just like, just give it a go. What's, what's, what's the worst that could happen? Like, honestly, what's the worst? Like, you care about what other people think? Not important. Mm. It's just not important these days. Amen. Thanks, Rob. No worries, mate. Have a good one. See you, mate. Bye. Okay, we are back. How are you going? How are you feeling? If this episode left you wanting more information about our wonderful LGBTQIA plus alphabet, then you should check out Minus 18. They're Australia's LGBTQIA plus charity. They have heaps of resources on their website and they run trainings for workplaces and classrooms. Minus 18 are on all socials at minus18youth and their website is minus18.org.au. But Minus 18 isn't a helpline. So if you're looking for support, you can call QLife on 1-800-184-527 for free every day from 3 p.m. till midnight. If you're feeling anxious and not up to talking on the phone, they also have web chat at qlife.org.au. Lifeline is also available 24 hours a day for crisis support and suicide prevention. Their number is 13 11 14. If you want to be a part of the Come Out Wherever You Are community, you can slide into our DMs on Instagram at Come Out Wherever You Are. You can also follow me at Sean Zeps. That's S-E-A-N-S-Z-E-P-S. Come Out Wherever You Are is presented by me, Sean Zeps. Our lovely producer is... Lindsay Green. Our executive producer is... Lemma Zacharia. And we can't forget our audio producer... Chris Marsh. See you soon. <laughs>